Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 280. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning into the show. Fantastic conversation today with Ken Marlin. Ken Marlin is an American investment banker and international strategist. He's an author of a brand new book called The Marine Corps Way to Win in Wall Street, 11 Key Principles from Battlefield to Boardroom. And with a title like that, you knew I had to reach out and find out what this was all about. And I love this book, and I love Ken. I'm so glad he came on the show. He's the founder and managing partner of Martin & Associates, which is an award-winning boutique investment bank and strategy firm. And... um, Ken spent 10 years active duty as a Marine Corps officer, an infantry officer, and he attributes a great deal of his success and the way he runs business on those principles that he learned in the Marine Corps. And uh, that's what compelled him to write this book, you know, because let's face it, Wall Street and CEOs, they have a bad perception. There's a bad bad perception out there. I mean, something changed in the 80s, right? You know, short-term thinking, um, kind of all about hubris and ego, putting themselves ahead of the team, putting profit ahead of the client, all those things kind of prompted Ken to write this book because he believes the principles that he learned in the Marine Corps and has applied in his day-to-day life can help you overcome those kind of daily challenges of business and uh, in life. And not only can you continue to make just as much, if not more money, you can do it with your head held high. That's what this book is all about. You know, Ken does a fantastic job with this book on showing how he has applied these 11 principles in a way that most of us should be able to recognize. It certainly resonates with me because I've, I talk about the Marine Corps a lot. I think about the Marine Corps every single day. I reference it almost every single day when, in terms of my leadership, uh, my own personal leadership style and growth. And uh, Ken does a fantastic job. And so it was just a fun conversation. You're really going to, if you're a fan of the show, this is definitely going to resonate with you. And Ken is just a fantastic individual and you think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Again, I'm so happy that you tune in the show. If you haven't done so, please take the time to download, subscribe to this on your on your mobile device. Take the time if you can and uh, rate and review this on iTunes on Stitcher. It does so much to help the visibility of the show, and your feedback is uh, so important to me and, and means the world to me. One more thing before we start the interview, you know, I started a new company in March, and um, I'm trying to get some momentum back on that again. I had to take a little bit of a backseat as I was with American going back to 737 training, but now I'm on the line flying the schedule. It's time to put some emphasis back on Verum Communications. And if you're a fan of the show, you know how I interview, you know how I'm passionate about the long conversations, the authentic conversations. I really enjoy and think it's one of my strengths is to get people to open up on this show. And I want to do the same for businesses. And that's what Verum Communications is all about. It's an opportunity for a CEO and the leadership or an organization who's really looking to disrupt their communication strategies, particularly if their business is geographically spread over large distances, well, here's an opportunity for us to create an internal show for an organization where I create an internal podcast branded for their brand, and it's pushed out to a mobile application. 
And then I have conversations with the CEO, with the senior leadership, with high performers in the organization, and we talk about the brand. And it's pushed out to a mobile device. And so for the first time ever, an organization is allowed to communicate in a way they've never been able to before. By tapping into people's mobile devices, they can get them when people are exercising, they're commuting in their car, they're waiting to get on the plane, they're traveling on the subway, whatever the case may be. And this is an opportunity for the CEO and the leadership of an organization to authentically connect with their folks and therefore drive engagement. Because the drivers of our engagement are hearing where the organization is heading, why the ship is heading that way. And if you as a stakeholder in the organization know how you fit in, then you feel engaged. And also if you highlight high performers in an organization, the organization feels engaged. And that's what it's all about. And that's a cornerstone of leadership. And that's what Virum Communication tries to do. It is a strategic leadership company using authentic and transparent communication pushed out the mobile devices in the form of an internal podcast. No one else is doing this, but this is what we do at Virum Communication. So if you have an organization or you know of an organization that would like to try this out, send them to Dose of Leadership, send them to virumcommunications.com. You can find the links both at Dose of Leadership and at virumcommunications.com. It would mean the world if you could connect me with an organization who's thinking about disrupting their communication strategy. Okay, thank you for that little plug. Without further ado, here's Ken Marlin on Dose of Leadership. Well, Ken, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thanks, Richard. I appreciate you having me. I was excited to find a fellow Marine who's uh, made quite a name for himself in the corporate arena. I've talked many times on this show, and I, I can't tell you how many times I refer back to the Marine Corps almost on a daily basis. It wasn't until I left the Marine Corps I realized how important that experience was towards any modicum of success that I've had up to this point. Did you have the same experience? You know, I I, uh, I completely had the same experience. Uh, I think I had an epiphany a couple of years after I had left the Marine Corps when I was handed a job that some people said was impossible. Uh, it, it basically required us to... Uh, divest of uh, three different companies out of South Africa during apartheid. You know that wow. period of time when the when the South African government sort of forced blacks to live separate lives and wouldn't give them education or or jobs or anything. And uh, and I had a short period of time to do it. Um, and the mandate was not only to get the companies sold at a time when people knew we had to sell, but the mandate was to sell them in a way that preserved people's jobs and and also gave the the, the parent company a possible way to buy them back if uh, if, if apartheid were to end, and uh, I, I, I totally fell back onto my Marine Corps training. Uh, things you'll remember well, things like backwards planning and mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know um, organizing a team and 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 making sure that we had clear communications and um, and a whole bunch of things that I learned in the Marine Corps. And I had this epiphany that I was running this thing just like I did when I was a company commander. So I, I totally relate. Yeah. When you were getting out, I, I alluded to earlier um, before we started recording that, I, I mean, I love the Marine Corps. I, I, I had a great experience. I wasn't one of those guys that I can't wait to get out. But I'm, I just remember thinking, oh, it's got to be better on the outside. And when I got outside, I noticed that, wow, the Marine Corps did things um. It, yeah, even though it's it can, you know, times can be bureaucratic and frustrating, for the most part, though, it was like the bad leadership that stood out. There was more good leadership than bad. Was that your experience? Yeah, 
it's funny because in some ways that was the genesis for my book. Um, I would go around regularly, um, I don't know, I don't whine or complain, but I suppose I'd, you know, look at people doing stupid things right. in the corporate world and the banking world and sometimes the political world. And I would say to my friends, why don't these people simply do things the way we were taught to do them in the Marine Corps? <laughs> right. They'd make just as much money, they'd have just as much success, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't be embarrassed, they wouldn't be paying fines, they wouldn't, in some cases, drive companies into the dust. They, they, life would be so much more pleasant for them. And people used to say to me, well, why don't you write a book about some of those principles? And that's what I did. Yeah, the great... The book is called The Marine Corps Way to Win on Wall Street, and 11 Marine Corps Principles for Success on Wall Street and on Main Street. And I love how you begin the book talking about kind of how we've, in a lot of ways, we've lost our way when it comes to, um, you know, it, it, it used to be Wall Street, Main Street stood for something, but then something happened. Why did it change and when did it change? You know, um, I think it started to change in, in the 80s. Um, uh, when a lot of things came together, but this whole concept of greed is good started creeping into the lexicon. Um, right. Because I think you're right. I think that people in corporate America, people in Wall Street, people in government, used to be primarily focused on their constituents. Um, you know, Richard, you may remember a phrase I, I heard sometimes when I was in the Marine Corps several times, which is basically about we we're supposed to do the right things for the right reasons every time no excuses right. and and um some place uh, i think it started in the 80s um uh, when people could just make a tremendous amount of money when ceos started making a tremendous amount of money and people in wall street and and, and people would serve in government and then, then somehow be a lot richer when they got done than when they went in and suddenly it all became about me and mine. Suddenly, we began um, focusing and rewarding individuals as opposed to teams. And, and, and you know, from my perspective, we, we saw an increasing number of people that w would take advantage of the the unsophisticated or the unwary or the weak and then high-five their partners as if that was like a really cool thing. They They took advantage of these people and they... They, they they somehow won, and I think they lost. Yeah. Um, but you're right, the world changed. We've lost our way a little bit, and it's almost like this book is a call to get us back to that. It, I mean, is that a fair assessment, or, or it, it seems? Yeah, like I wouldn't want I wouldn't want somebody to think it's a it's a book on ethics or morals. It, it's not. Um, I'm I'm an entrepreneur, and I run an investment bank, and I, I like to make money. Right. Um. So I, I'm. You know, in no way would I suggest that people in corporate America or people in Wall Street, uh, you know, should should somehow suddenly become monks and, you know, live in a, live in a hole. I, I don't believe that. Um, I, I do believe that it is a call for people to get out back to fundamentals, but to do so in a way in which they can still win. They can still make just as much money. They can still be just as successful. Right. But their mothers won't be as embarrassed. <laughs> right. Yes. I love how you say the Marine Corps is filled with unreasonable people trying to change the world. I know what that means, but tell me, what does that mean to you? You know, it, it, it stems from a quote um, that I'll probably mangle because it's not in front of me. It was from George Bernard Shaw, who said essentially that 
the, the, the reasonable man sees the way the world is and adapts himself to that world. The unreasonable man sees the way the world is and persists in trying to adapt the world to him. There would be no progress in life without unreasonable men. And it, it, is, it is people who refuse to accept the norm, who refuse to accept the, the constraints that others see that, that lead us to, to new heights, that, that lead us to new innovation, that lead their companies to, to great things. And, um, you know, and um, I, I think Marines are people who don't accept the constraints that other people say are there. Um, I sometimes talk to people about the difference between managing and leading. I think managers do tend to feel that they have to accept the resources they're given, the constraints they're given, the territory they're given, the, the tools and assets that they're given, and they try their best to uh, to succeed with within those constraints. I think true leaders look at those things and say, oh, okay, this is cool, but uh, in order for me to, success, to, to, to be a success, I'm going to change the rules, and uh, I'm, and uh, and that's what leadership is all about. I love that. I remember early, um, I was in the basic school, and I was talking to the sergeant major. There was talking to us, and he said, "You know, this is all about suspending the belief on how things are going to get done. It's just knowing it's going to get done." And I love that kind of analogy, that mindset, anyway. I don't know how it's going to get done. I just know it's going to get done. And it's that confidence of, of not knowing. It's almost you know, going on the, the faith that you will be successful. I think that's right. I also think that Marine leaders are taught to insist that it get done, to, to yeah. not accept failure. Um, you know, if, you, if you run into a roadblock, you find a way over it, under it, around it, or through it. But yeah. you don't let it stop you. It's the tenacity piece. Yeah, being tenacious. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, these 11 principles, let's dive into some of these. And some of these that really resonate with me, I'll, I'll say right out of the, the bat, the first one, you know, taking the long view, that was probably the thing that struck me the most as I worked, as I transitioned from the Marine Corps to the, the corporate arena, was almost this lack of um, having the situation awareness of the bigger picture, right? And we were so, success and metrics and everything was so focused on the tactical of you know the, the bottom line of sales of, of getting the costs down and we just we're so mired in that but what you're talking about here is is let's don't lose sight of those transactions that are more strategic am i saying that right well i think you are i think that um, um in the marine corps as you know all, all tactics all tactics are a means to an end. They are a means to achieving the long-term strategic mission that uh, sometimes we set for ourselves and sometimes is set for us by higher headquarters. But we all understand what that long-term strategic goal is. And then the tactics are in support of that. And sometimes you have to modify your tactics, right? Sometimes the enemy's got to vote. Um, but you're, you're constantly employing your, your assets in tactical ways in order to achieve an objective that we all understand. Mm -hmm. You would think that that would be sort of a sine qua non in the civilian world. You would think everybody would understand that. You know, of course, it's logical. What else would you do? And yet, you know, I, I'm in the investment banking world now. I, I used to run some companies. And, you know, sometimes I look at this thing from a merger and acquisition perspective. Um, 
and I saw two deals this week that that that, uh, that I remarked on. One was Microsoft buying LinkedIn, and the other one was Verizon buying Yahoo. Um, Microsoft buying LinkedIn made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever <laughs> right. for $26 billion. Um, I mean, I thought the price was crazy, but um, it was the... It was the, the strategy that totally eluded me. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I like LinkedIn. I'm one of the first thousand users of LinkedIn. Everybody in my company uses it. We use it not only to connect with people. We actually use it to recruit people. So I think LinkedIn is a great company. But but it, as a tactic, how did the $26 billion acquisition of LinkedIn advance Microsoft towards some clear strategic goal. And I would argue that it didn't. It was just a cool company in a cool space yeah. that's doing some cool things and growing, and, and they had an opportunity to buy it for, for three times what it was worth, and so they did. And Microsoft does this periodically. They they did it when they bought Skype. They did it when they bought Aquana. They did it when they bought um, the Nokia handset business. Um, and then they wind up writing down the value that they, most of the value that they paid, and I predict they'll do the same thing with with LinkedIn. And I contrast that with Verizon buying Yahoo, which I actually thought was quite a smart move in the context of the fact that they already own AOL. Mm. And 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 so, from a strategic standpoint, if you're trying to take out AOL and you're trying to make the the, the world's number one general interest sports, finance, news, entertainment website. The, the combining that with with Yahoo makes tremendous sense. Plus, they paid about one tenth the price that Microsoft was willing to pay for Yahoo a few years ago. Um, so we see this all the time. I, I, I see it with companies not only in the mergers and acquisitions world. We, we see them um, with uh, with product introductions, with going into other geographies. We we see some people who are smart and strategic and way too many who just do whatever's cool, whatever's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> makes no sense. It's almost like you got to wonder if ego or hubris got in the way on those those type of deals, you know, just for the fact that it was, like you said, a cool company, someone that was doing something cool. How That probably happens more than than we'd like to admit. I think it, it it happens all the time. I mean, one of the things I, I, I certainly learned in the Marine I know that you you flew airplanes. Um, you know, I was I was an infantry an infantry officer, um, and um, one of the things that was drilled into us was that you don't have to fight every battle. Yeah. Just because the bad guys are on a hill right. doesn't mean you have to kick them off that hill. Sometimes right. you can just leave them there. That's right. Sometimes just go around them, and it's better, right? Just, and, just, just go around them if they're not in your way. Leave them right. there. And I think that's, you, you don't have to fight a battle just because you can. That's right. And I think that's it's the understanding of what is it, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve. And if you know that crystal clear, then you're less likely to do the hubris, well, let's go fight him because we're Marines, you know, because that's what we do. Well, hold on a second. What right. are we trying to achieve, right? Yeah. Exactly. I love that. I love the take the second one too. The take the stand. The other part I I think is lacking. The one of my biggest pet peeves is people not willing. It's tied in with decision making, but it's deeper than this, just regular decision making with partial information. It's standing for something, even if it's unpopular. And I, I, that's I, exactly right. Yeah. It is. 
it is a combination of both of those things. Um, I do believe that leaders need to be decisive. They need to be willing to act when they have imperfect information. But it is absolutely about standing for something, about willing to speak truth to power. Yeah. I mean, let's, you know, how many engineers at General Motors knew that the company was putting cars out with faulty ignition switches yeah. and did nothing? And, and so then, I don't know, 51, 52 people died, like a few hundred of, were, were injured. General Motors winds up paying hundreds of millions of dollars in fines, and their reputation is hit. In, in some cases, not because somebody did something, but because some people didn't do something. Right. They didn't take a stand. They didn't stand up and say something. Uh, you could say the same thing with Volkswagen. Uh, you know, how many people knew that they were cheating on emissions tests and did nothing? I mean, forget about the people who... Who, who actually, you know, developed the software and put it in and, and the like. But, but how about all the other people who just wouldn't take a stand, including some executives? It's not a culture we should be encouraging. It's, a, it's one that we ought to be telling leaders they, they, they need to take a stand, even when that stand is unpopular. I can tell you we do. And I can't tell you how many times we've told clients that they you know, came to us to sell their business that they shouldn't sell or clients that have come to us and asked us to help them buy a company and we've told them after examining the facts, don't. Um, you know, bankers are often unwilling to do that because it puts their fee at risk. Um, I look at it differently. I say, you guys aren't taking the long view, <laughs> which goes back to your first one, right? If you give true, honest, unvarnished advice, you'll get the respect of the client and they'll come back to you for more. You know, it, it is an amazing phenomenon. You know, Gene Krantz talked about this when I interviewed him a few years ago. The same mindset was with the shuttle tragedy in 83 or, or 85, 86. With the O-ring, the same thing. There were lots of people that knew that this was a problem but didn't take a stand. Why is it just fear of not being right or not confident in our decisions or is it fear of reprisal? What do you think it is? Well, you know, I, I, I don't discount the very real desire to protect your job. People are, you know, and, um, you know, if, if there is an organization that has a culture that doesn't allow people to to speak up when it's time to speak up and people are in fear of losing their job, then um, I, I get it. I mean, I agree with it, but I get it. And then there's also something else. It's just called, you know, it's just, just fear of sort of not going along with your friends. There's just yeah, this right. you know, go along to get along mentality. And, you know, uh, I, I see this all the time. Uh, um, I see it in politics too. You know, it's like if all your friends are one way, if all your friends are for Hillary and you're for Trump, you just shut up. If all your <laughs> friends are for Trump and you're for Hillary, you just shut up. Right. You know, uh, it says, well, I, I don't want to raise hackles. I don't want to, you know, we'll just, I'll just keep my head down. I won't say anything. I've seen, and, seen that psychology in the cockpit too. We studied that where, you know, you get a, abrasive personality, abrasive captain, and, and there'll be people that have literally, and there's, there's plenty of examples of real life examples where people have flown, planes into the ground in a mountain and they've died and they knew that they were going to, but it, the overwhelmingness to speak or the fear of speaking up or taking a stand was so overpowering that they would rather crash into a mountain than speak up. It's, it's a f amazing phenomenon. Well, I believe that if we're going to change the culture in boardrooms, if we're going to change the culture in Washington, DC, if we're going to change the 
culture on Wall Street that we need to have an increasing number of people who are willing to to speak truth to power. Yeah. We, we need to have on on both sides of the aisle. We need to we need to have people who who stand up and say, you know what, my side is not not always right, and the other side is not always wrong. Maybe this time they've actually got a legitimate point. We should actually think about listening to them. Yeah, I agree. Well said. You know, the next, uh, I guess the one, two, three, I guess the next four. I I kind of put these under the awareness piece. I don't the, the be the expert, know the enemy know what the train is is worth and knowing yourself i kind of put that all under awareness a lot of self-awareness but awareness of your surroundings too it's all kind of tied into that you know what the marine corps taught us about being technically and tactically proficient right i mean it's a little deeper than that but if i could sum it up it's just to me it's all about awareness what do you what do you like about those yeah yeah, so I, I would agree with you that they're about awareness. Um, there's some subtleties there. Um, be the expert is probably me having a negative reaction to a world in which there are just so many generals. Yeah, so yeah. My, my father used to, my father's an engineer. He's got his master's in thermodynamics. He used to work for the Cummins Engine Company. And he used to, he used to um, just come home and complain about some of the, Top management there that were, he said, these are really smart guys. These guys went to top schools. They know all about finance. They know all about human relations. They know all about how to motivate people. They know all about labor relations. But they don't know a piston rod from a crankshaft. And how do you run an engine company if you don't know anything about engines? How do you lead that company to the, to the next generation? How do you? How do you ensure that that company will be around for the next hundred years? And the answer is they can't. And and I, I see these generalists who are smart people. I, I don't mean to to imply otherwise. And often hardworking people, but they're politicians who who think that because they're smart and they went to good schools and they're well educated and they know how to get elected, that somehow that makes them experts on everything from social security to the military budget to agriculture to whatever. I, I see bankers who think they can advise a dog food company one day and an aerospace company the next day because all you have to do is be smart and in a couple of hours you can learn it all. And you can't. Expertise develops over time and you need to respect experts. And, you know, I I say that leaders need to become experts. Yeah, I agree with you. I see that in aviation a lot where, you know, I got to hand it to the Navy Marine Corps way of teaching. I mean, bottom up learning all those systems at, deeper than than probably most and deeper than what even american airlines taught me because american airlines like hey just it's all about process and procedures and you know you can't control it from the cockpit so why even worry about it i agree to an extent but you're a much better pilot a much better aircraft commander if you know how all the systems work or at least a basic general knowledge of how they work as opposed to someone that just knows if I push this button, the screen comes on or off, right? I mean, knowing why that screen comes on off is much better, makes a better pilot, makes a better leader in my opinion, yeah. I also believe that the guy that's landed at London Heathrow a thousand times is more expert at doing it than the guy who's doing, you know, who's, you know, just came out of his Cessna trainer. Sure. Right? I yeah. mean, expertise takes takes time to develop, and, uh, and and people need to respect that. And and you're right about you know knowing yourself and knowing the other side have, have some dimensions of self awareness. But you know, in, uh, what I see 
room quite frequently are people who don't know themselves. It's like they're full of themselves. <laughs> they, right. they think they're, they they think that they know more than they do. They think they're smarter than they are. They think, you know, we we have a guy running for president who thinks he knows more about ISIS than the generals on the ground. <laughs> right. um, we. Um, you know, General Mattis, who, who you will know oh, well, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, led all Marines in, in Iraq and then led all Marines, um, you know, said something effective, you know, you, you you cannot fool yourself. If you if you fool yourself in, in combat, the, the, the result is going to be disastrous. You, 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 you have to be brutally honest with your own capabilities, your own limitations, your own strengths, and your own weaknesses. And, and you know, when I have people, you hear people talk about, oh, we should just go impose a no-fly zone in, in Syria, piece of cake. You know, it's just, you know, to what extent are you willing to shoot down Russian aircraft? I mean, have you, how much have you thought about this, about what's involved? How much are you willing to tie up 200,000 Americans? military people, because that's maybe what it takes in order to impose a true no-fly zone, right? Are, are you are you willing to lose a uh, thousand or two thousand people to to an aircraft fire? And you know, it, it's, it's 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 just people just they they aren't self-aware. Yeah. Um, I, and I see it. You know, one of the uh, principles is knowing knowing the other side, knowing the enemy. And and again, I, I see people who just draw these caricatures. You know, I, I tell people all the time, nobody believes they're a bad guy. Nobody believes that's that right. what they're doing is is illogical or irrational, right? Right. Um, and if you don't understand not only the strengths and weaknesses of the other side, but their capabilities and their motivations. The result is Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. You, 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 you think that because we have the more powerful military and because we can kill them at a faster rate than, than they can kill us, that, um, that, that we will inevitably win. But you just don't understand who you're fighting. You don't understand their motivation. You don't understand that they think of us as the as the the empire in the in the Star Wars movies. They're mm-hmm. they're Luke Skywalker. That's we're right. The, we're the we're the big bad guys with the the Death Star, right? A, and they're just going to keep you know, they're going to keep fighting. That's a great point. It's having that emotional quotient, or at least that emotional intelligence, to know that hey, how do I put myself in their shoes? What are they thinking? How do they see us? That is truly knowing your own. Again, the awareness piece, like we're talking about, you're so so true on that so right because it leads to um and i was going to say too that tie it in with the brutal facts piece i heard mattis say that brutal facts are your friends having that the the willingness to see things how they really are and the ability to put yourself in uh your enemy's shoes that's never done enough right it's almost like you said we have the moral high ground we're right so we're gonna do yeah yeah and at, at some point i think you know people need to recognize that um, most uh, most wars and and most business conflicts end with a negotiated agreement, not with complete, total, unconditional surrender. And and so what you're trying to do is to get to that point where you're in a position to negotiate uh, something that works for you. And the more you understand the other side, you can figure out what they're looking for and maybe come up with something that works for both. Right. One thing that I got out of this book that I 
I hadn't thought about this, but it really stuck out. I just love this is that it's the seventh one is to win control is to win is to control the timing. And I used to always kind of think, yeah, to win. And I always talked in aviation terms. It's all about surprise and coming around, but it's not about surprise. Is it? it it's, it's about the timing of it. Yeah. It's about controlling the timing. That's right. As, as I noted in the book, Saddam Hussein could not have been surprised right. that, that the Allied forces um, came in to kick him out of Kuwait. He probably watched the buildup on CNN for months. Right. Um, and that, and the the, uh, the but but the the U.S. led coalition controlled the timing. They were able to to get intelligence to to assess where Hussein's troops were and what they were doing, and they controlled the timing, and then they controlled the battlefield. It wasn't about surprise. Uh, conversely. The Egyptians and the Syrians in the Yom Kippur War totally surprised the Israelis, um, but they couldn't c- continue to control the timing, and the Israelis rapidly gained control of the uh, of the battlefield and control of the timing, and, and they wound up winning. It's it's not about surprise; it's about control. So, how do we? But in the case like the two examples you gave, why why were the Israelis successful? How did they control the timing? Is it because they were? Because they had more intelligence, have they had more um, of the bigger picture? What do you think it was? You know, um, we could spend a lot of time analyzing the Arab-Israeli war. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. I, I think that I, um, I think that the the point is that you have to find a way. You can't be the victim. You can't right. sit there and be on your heels all the time. You've got to find a way to seize the offensive. Um, you know, we had a client one time. Actually, they weren't even a client. We, we had a company we were talking to for quite some time. It was a young company. It was growing rapidly, and it, it had some pretty cool technology and was run by a young woman who had run another company and sold it successfully. Um, but most of the money went to the venture capitalist, not to her. So she was looking to, to build this company and actually make some money out of it for herself and, and for her partners. And um, we were talking to her, and we understood that in three or four years, they'd be ready to sell the company. And then they got approached by a large company who said they'd like to buy them. Okay, so you'd say right now the the large buyer was the one who sort of seized the initiative and and was trying to control the timing. And, um, you know, she came to us and said, what do I do? And, you know, what we did was help her manage a process in which, you know, you know, it was a six-month-long process. I'll, 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 you know, sort of cut it down to the simple version in a couple of minutes. But basically, we, working with her, we um, went to the other side and we said, look, um, it is our plan to sell the company um, in three or four years. And, and here's a cash flow model we helped them develop, and here's here's what companies like this are selling for. And, and, and so we were able to show the other company that in three or four years, here's what it'll be worth. And we're in no hurry, so if you're willing to pay, you know, go a long way towards what the company will be worth in three or four years, then we're willing to have a conversation with you. And, and if not, go away and come back and you can participate in an auction in three or four years. And, you know, the short answer is they wanted it badly enough and they understood it. And we were able to get control of the timing and, and control of the situation uh, and, and stop being on the defensive. And, need to do that in business. Yeah, so it's it's everything like you talk about in this book as you sum sum everything up around it. It, it is the controlling the timing it, it ties into the planning into the, the coming up with the a process having the discipline 
to to carry that out and to to have a culture of leadership. I mean, really, that's what it's about. I mean, that's it, what, it is. You know, I, I, I say this word discipline to some people, and they think it means blind obedience to orders. Right. I say, you know what? It's a, it's a misconception that Marines are all sitting there waiting to be ordered to do something. Right? We we train um, people at all levels from from platoon sergeants and squad leaders and and on up to to be able to operate independently. Yeah. You know, we give them we give them direction, but then we don't expect them to sit around and wait for orders. The discipline in the Marine Corps comes not from following orders, but from from having a disciplined approach yes. to to winning the battle. It's about disciplined planning. It's about disciplined preparation. It's about disciplined execution. Mm-hmm. It's about not skipping steps. It's not about following orders. That's it's right. about doing the right things for the right reasons every time. I love how you said that, and it's so true. The discipline is is not the blind allegiance to orders. It is having the willingness to make decisions with partial information, to compartmentalize, to not freak out, to not panic, right? To always be calm, to be confident, to be consistent in everything that you do. And to stay Absolutely. I, I tell people all the time, and I'm sure you, you do in the air, no drama. No drama. No, one drama. <laughs> no drama. That's right. It's so true. And I think that, and I look back at those things at the Marine Corps, have helped me out, both from, from an aviation, but just from an officer perspective, is to never lose your bearing. And even though I may feel like, a, you know, scared to death or feel like choking somebody out or, do you know, losing my temper or whatever, and we've all failed at it, but man, it's that never losing your bearing thing. It just stuck with me. And um, it's it's a skill that, that you can you can learn how to do. You know, you can compartmentalize. In fact, you have to in aviation, and as an officer too, as in the Marine Corps, you have to compartmentalize. It's it's a requirement. Yeah, well, I love the book, my friend. I think it's a great. Um, of course, I'm biased towards the Marine Corps material, but I love seeing examples, like you said, of of people taking what the Marine Corps have done and applying it to the real world. And I I just think it's a great piece of work. Um, congratulations on that. Thank you. You know, I appreciate it, and I appreciate your time. I, I think uh, I think it was a lot of fun writing it, and uh, I've gotten some uh, pretty good reactions from it. Uh, I get it. Trying to change culture isn't easy. It won't happen as a result of one book, but uh, maybe we'll get some dialogues going. Uh, maybe people will hear this and you know read the book and read some of the other comments on the book, and maybe we'll get people who. Uh, start to take the long view and take a stand and think more about the people on the other side and negotiate from the high ground and a few other things and maybe maybe we can start to change the culture. I agree with you and it's needed. It's needed badly for sure. Last question I'd like to ask, who whose shoulders are you standing on? Who who are your heroes, I guess? You know, my my heroes are some of the people that I served with when, you know, I spent 10 years in the Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, I, I talk about Joe O'Brien, who was a, you know, was a lieutenant colonel when I saw him, retired as a full bird colonel and was my battalion commander. And, you know, was a was the kind of leader that you expect, a, a Marine's leader, a, a leader that people would, would, would follow in combat any time, uh, you know, a guy named Chuck Barstow. You know, my, my heroes are not so much, you know, Chesty Puller and, and right. people who were famous and, and the like. I never knew those people. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're inspiring people, but but it, it's the people that I saw every day in the Marine Corps who who every day demonstrated what it's what it is to be to, to be a leader to 
to do the right thing for the right reasons every time. No excuses. Yeah, I love that. I, I when I see that, I talk about and I see those examples, those handful of people that no one else really knows. But I saw those examples too, and there's a lot of love emanating from them. You know, when I see that, when you think about, it, there's a lot of love coming from those people, and uh, that I think is what's needed in a lot of places. Yeah, it's true. All right, my friend, how can people get in touch with you and learn more about you? And I'll have links to all of this, uh, but how can people get in touch with you? Um, you know, I'm uh, pretty easy. They can simply Google me, Ken Marlin, M-A-R-L-I-N. They can email me, Ken at MarlinLLC.com. It's Marlin, my last name, LLC.com. Um, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not too hard to find. Very good. I'll have links to all this. Ken, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. You'll always have a welcome here at Dose of Leadership. Thanks for coming on the show. All right. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com. <music>